Welcome back to another episode of the Books Brothers Podcast, where each week we read, discuss, and challenge each other to become better men and have a few laughs in the process. The Books Brothers are currently reading The Mask of Masculinity, How Men Can Embrace Vulnerability, Create Strong Relationships, and Live Their Fullest Lives, written by Lewis Howes. This week, Stalin leads our discussion as we unpack the invincible mask. It's not uncommon as men to feel that we're invincible, that we're impervious to rules or our own safety. However, at some point in our lives, we have an experience or two that sobers us to the reality of our true mortality, that laws are meant to be abided by, and that we aren't as invincible as we initially felt. The guys will share their own experience with this mask and dig in to the possible reasons for why men wear the invincible mask. After the show, please share your comments and feedback on the chapter by emailing us at connect at booksbrotherspodcast.com. Wi-Fi, I guess, back in my office is terrible or something. Normally, it's not this choppy. The old Wi-Fi excuse. You want to try to move? You going to try to move right next to your router? (laughs) Hey, dog's using that Cat 5E instead of that Cat 6. I remember my first Ethernet connection. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I got to move my my cheese puffs, my apple juice. (laughs) <laughs> you probably got yeah, a you probably you probably got a damn Linksys router, don't you? Uh, <laughs> you, you really? got that free free Google Fiber? No. Hey, the old faithful. It's not faithful. Dude, Spectrum, it's not faithful. Spectrum and Google. <laughs> Spectrum and Google. They send me literally like five pieces of mail every week, like. Your internet, your internet's about have, to run out, and I just toss it every time. Three, two, one, blast off! On this week's episode, we are discussing the invincible mask. Lewis begins this chapter sharing his interview with Travis Pastrana. Travis has been one of the most famous extreme sports athletes and stuntmen of our lives, and has dealt with a lot of injuries as a result. But as Travis has aged and has a family now, his willingness to take risks has decreased. He shares that he has had close friends die from accidents and has considered his own mortality more through the years. This leads to Lewis talking about his risky behaviors as a child. He started with cheating in class, and as he continued to not be caught, he felt invincible. The cheating became more consistent, and he even started stealing. He was able to eventually move away from these behaviors, but it was not until he got caught. He realized he wasn't invincible and things would catch up with him. So uh, as as Lewis talks about in in this this chapter about how he had these, you know, foolish and risky behaviors that he was involved with with when he was younger, it made me think about, yeah, what were the dumb things that I did as a kid? And so I just want to lead off by asking you guys, were there any risky or foolish behaviors that you all were involved in whenever you were younger, whether like I don't know, elementary, middle school, a year or maybe even high school. I loved fireworks and fire as a kid. And 4th of July was my favorite holiday. So my cousins and I would always make our own creations, if you will. Hmm. And I'm just really grateful I have all my fingers. Yeah, we would shoot uh, Roman candles and bottle rockets at each other. That was probably like my biggest thing I thought of this. I thought I was stuff with fireworks too. You used to or kind of still, kind of still. Like, when's the last time you held a Roman candle? I feel like I would would still probably do a Roman candle. Fourth of of July is big there in Hawaii, right? 
I remember when we were at Thomas's grandma and uh, people were shooting each other with BB guns in the butt. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. <laughs> we used to make potato guns, too, and those things were oh, beastly. Yeah, oh, those were awesome. I love potato guns. Stalin and I got uh, pulled out of my car. Was Were you there after the homecoming night? Yeah, oh, we got, yeah. We got pulled out of my car by a police officer in high school. I remember the guy asked us, he was like, hey, when I search your guys' car, am I going to find any <laughs> drugs, alcohol, or dead he said hookers? That? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> dead hookers. So we start laughing. Yeah, he said dead that. hookers. And so we start laughing, obviously. <laughs> and he was like, it's going to be best for you not to yeah, laugh. He was really serious. That was because uh, yeah. there were people paintballing homes in the neighborhood. And obviously it wasn't us. We were the most innocent kids oh, ever shoot. in high school for the most part. Yeah, yeah for sure. Huh. Robbie, I you were wanting to share something. Yeah. I mean, on this one, I found myself relating to this um, to an extent a little bit more like as the chapter progressed. I think that um, I'm by no means like a Travis Pastrana where I was doing wild and crazy things as a young boy and putting myself in a ton of danger. But man, even even today when I ride my bike and certainly back when I was younger, I mean, I would ride my bike everywhere, like all around the neighborhood, to school, to the pool, wherever. And I just remember going down hills, no hands, blowing through stop signs, <laughs> dodging traffic. And my parents, uh, they'd hate to hear this, but they did not do a good job protecting my head. I, I actually never owned a helmet growing up and mm. have actually never what? owned a helmet my entire life, <laughs> um, which is kind of crazy because as a young boy and, you know, as a parent and your young, you know, 10 year old boy is gone for two, three hours and he's not wearing a helmet. Like I would be worried to death today. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I could definitely relate to that level of extreme. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly not as extreme as Travis Pastrana by any means, but he's talking about, you know, almost a, a date with death where it's like, mm -hmm. He, he puts himself in super harmful positions. He opens up kind of um, the chapter was saying, I might not make this, but if I do, it'll be worth it. And mm -hmm. just yesterday, I mean, on my way to the gym, I, I know where the cars are going to stop. I know where the stop signs are. And if I time it just right, I can blow right through them without having to stop myself. And I did that yesterday <laughs> um, because I saw every car come to a stop and I knew that I was yeah. moving at a speed that none of them they were going to turn right or go straight and I was going the other direction. So I knew I was going to be good, but, um, just taking those risks, I think, mm -hmm. you know, certainly becoming a married man, like they, they're not worth taking, but I continue to take them. And Stalen, I know you asked this about being younger when, you know, we're in middle school, high school, whatever, but I was reflecting on it, um, as an adult today. So <laughs> I, I, text and drive i hate to agree, oh, but you gotta go oh doing that um we need to get a helmet for you for the car and the bike dude like i don't think probably never texted and drove oh before. i popped a couple uh, tires once yeah 
Uh, well, Thomas, you ride a motorcycle, so you're less likely to get away with it. But um, <laughs> I find myself doing it or I'll be driving and I'll look over and I'll see somebody doing it themselves. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, why would you put yourself or me at risk? Put your eyes on the road. And then literally 15 minutes later, I'm doing the exact same thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I can't be doing that. You know, and I've even had talks with Marianne about like, hey, we need to do better about not texting and driving and not putting ourselves at risk because like, yeah, I mean, I would I would feel terrible uh, if something happened, if I caused something. Um, and, yeah, there's been unfortunate things where, like, I ran into a pot. Dang. Rob, you need Asian American car insurance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, you guys ever have somebody throw a uh, banana peel or a turtle shell at you out the window? <laughs> that is rough but that is the most dangerous thing i mean even even if you're not texting it's easy to get distracted in the car i found myself yeah. talking talking in the car and even that is one of those things where like i'll forget where i'm going or something because i'm talking to somebody right even if it's just hands-free on the phone whatever yeah. so there's a bunch of different ways you can get distracted Remember when we used to longboard all around Springfield, Matt, like at one in the morning? Yeah, that's what uh, this chapter kind of reminded me of. That was awesome. I loved longboarding. Like, I remember one time we went down this big hill and like either forgot or didn't realize there were railroad tracks at the bottom. And (laughs) a skateboard wheel fits like perfectly in the space between the road and the railroad track. And we were going so fast that we... We were able to go over them, but we did a lot of that kind of stuff. We did. You had a really bad longboard longboarding accident, didn't you? Yeah, I got road rash pretty bad one summer. I was on like a uh, county road somewhere without mm-hmm. a whole lot of traffic and stuff, so it was kind of like a safer place to bomb hills. But I wasn't used to no. doing that, and my my board wasn't set up right, and my skills really weren't where they should have been. And I had gloves mm-hmm. and helmet on, luckily, but I cracked my helmet. And I ripped through one of my gloves. I remember teaching you how to longboard freshman year. That was fun. You were so you, awkward. You taught you taught me how to do everything, man. You're the you're the Mr. Miyagi. As a kid, I definitely had some of that invincible mask going on, but not to the extent that this chapter was talking about. Yeah. I was always scared of getting hurt or like breaking a bone. I'm thankful that my parents actually did force me to wear a helmet because I skateboarded a lot just in in the front of my house or we would go to skate parks every once in a while. But I remember there was this one time my neighbor had a a rail, like a round rail for skateboarding on and my feet slipped backwards so that my shins hit the rail and my face just went straight into the concrete and I was wearing a helmet for sure. But if I was not, I probably would have been in the emergency room. It was a a really hard slide. Oh man. Is that what they call (laughs) this trick? Backside (laughs) fakey shin slide. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember, and this is this is just very dumb, and it and it you know it sounds very awful kind of looking back. But when I was in middle school, I think Adam, I don't, I don't think this was with you, but feel free to jump in if it was. But we would throw like Twinkies at cars, like cars driving like thirty five miles an hour. And <laughs> Not me. Looking I, would, back, it's like, I would never do that. <laughs> I mean, it's dangerous. It's really dumb. Um, and I, I remember just doing just a couple times. It was one of those things. Like, man, I think that like that's like an example of just like kids just like doing dumb stuff, not realizing consequences. And that's kind of like what Lewis is talking about, where it's like, yeah, you just do this thing, you don't realize the consequence. And um, I remember, you know, it just takes like one time a car stopping and like laying into you, screaming into you, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's yeah. dumb. But um, but yeah, you guys, so you guys ever put aluminum foil and toilet bowl cleaner inside of a two liter bottle? No. Yeah, me neither. No. I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys oh ever? Uh, you guys ever put poop on a doorstep and ring, light it on fire? <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh. Hey, remember poop dollar? You guys ever do poop dollar? For Garrett to story. No, I remember. Um, Everybody's invincible till they get pink eye, right? <laughs> Whenever I was scared to like drop in on a half pipe or a bowl or something, I would just think to myself as a middle schooler, like, I'm young. I'm still in pretty good health. If I break a bone or something, then I will heal eventually and it'll be fine. Oh, gosh. And I'll be. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's the most than invincible your, uh, I got. Yeah, that's better than your your friend your other friends that already did it saying you're a wiener for not having the balls <laughs> no. to drop in. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I mean, honestly, that that has a lot to do with respect when you're a kid. Oh, like yeah. if you don't want to do something cuz you're scared, like, oh, come on, man, like yeah. everybody's going to judge that. Yeah. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You've been in a car accident again. You need car insurance that truly understands your unique needs as an Asian American driver. Look no further. Asian American car insurance is here to provide you with the coverage and support you deserve. I've tried other insurance companies, but Asian American car insurance gets me. They know the challenges we face on the road and offer tailored solutions. Our team of experts is fluent in your language, just English, and culture, making it easier to get the help you need when you need it. I feel valued and respected as a customer. They even sent me a bag of rice when I signed up. Accidents happen, but with Asian American car insurance, you're in good hands that use chopsticks. We'll guide you through the process, ensuring you receive the support and compensation you deserve. Fortune cookie included. Protect your loved ones and your vehicle with the insurance that understands you. <laughs> Choose Asian American Car Insurance today. The insurance that will have you smiling like those little Buddha statues. <laughs> That's excellent. The gong comes back to like a reverb. Matt, is it okay if I laugh at that? <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> And now back to the show. Well, anyway, anyways, to proceed forward. Um, so, uh, Lewis, then as he, as he talks about kind of his, his experience with risky behaviors, uh, he talks about how it's not only risky behaviors that make men feel invincible, but also in pursuits of a career. 
he quotes a book, Men in Therapy, um, and the quote is, the, the aggressive pursuit of power may produce prestige, authority, and money, but men are rarely aware or even consider the negative consequences. External power frequently leads to self-neglect. So yeah, so like with this, some men push themselves so hard vocationally that they put an arbitrary goal of success above things like family, relationships, or their own mental well-being. He references a news reporter, Dan Harris, who has a mental breakdown on live TV. This reporter is an example of someone who has been pushing forward and working harder, not taking the time to deal with trauma that he'd had while he'd experienced while reporting in war zones. He knew that he just had to deal with the pressure to, to keep getting jobs and keep getting work. So is there a time that you guys can think about in your life, uh, whether it was with work, family, or school, where you felt like you were pushing so hard that you were like getting to a point of like a, like a nervous break where you, where you felt like you were trying to be invincible, uh, where you felt like things were going to break down or maybe they did. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys probably all know just from previous conversations in life, but man, when I worked for my last company, uh, asphalt paving construction company in town, I was managing their logistics and I was working seven days a week. No joke. On Saturdays, because we had crews running on Saturdays. So you basically had to log in, have meetings on Saturday, you know, be available throughout the day, make sure it ended um, well. And then you'd have to be available on Sunday because you'd have to set everything up for Monday on Sunday. So, so pretty much Monday through Friday was like 12, no joke, to 14 hours because we'd have night jobs going as well. And then between Saturday and Sunday, it'd be like another. 10 hours. So, I mean, it, it Damn. averaged out to be about no joke, 70 to 80 hours a week. And it wasn't necessarily by any means a, a level of like, I want this power or I want the title or yeah. anything like that. It was just more or less like I wanted to do my job. Uh, we were a family owned construction asphalt company. Um, and I just wanted to oh. help the business succeed. And with that came a lot of sacrifice and a lot of time and, and, you know, you kind of got, got the cooler or the colder, colder months off during the winter, but you really made up for it during the summer months and the, the spring and the fall. So I can relate to this a lot. I mean, I, I had never really experienced anxiety before until this job because literally I could not escape my phone. I couldn't escape work. I was constantly thinking about it. I, I would be driving home to see my family. And the first thing that I would do before I'd even hug my you know, niece or nephew or say hi to my parents is I would go and plug my laptop in because you know it might have been dying on the, on the drive in. And so I wanted to make sure that I could button up work so that I could actually be in a good mental space, both physically, I guess, and mm -hmm. mentally to like, be available to my family as much as I could. And so many of the times I wasn't and that affected uh, my relationship that I was in with Marianne. And obviously, you know, I wanted to be more available and, and take care of myself. And I ultimately left the job um, because I knew that I couldn't carry on and I didn't want to live like that. I remember taking a trip to Utah with my dad and I was on the side of Bryce Canyon under a full moon fighting for Wi-Fi from our cabin or somewhere. I, I couldn't believe that I actually was almost able to get Wi-Fi, but it was like, are you kidding me? Like I take vacation only to work 
because I know that if I actually take vacation, I'm only going to be in a bigger hole when I get back. So it was like, how do I alleviate it while still trying to be available to the business? It it just was a very, very unhealthy way to live. Um, But, you know, a lot of guys, they sign up for it and they're, and they're cool with it. I don't think I was necessarily fully made aware of all of the sacrifices, but I, you know, buckled up and did the job for three seasons. And that was enough for me to, to realize, okay, this, this isn't something I want to continue. Yeah. So so wait, how long, how long was it that busy Rob? So it, it would be pretty much full steam for eight to nine months of the year. Dang. Was that like when you were in Utah there, was that like the turning point, like that, that moment, or was there something you recall that like happened that like, you're like, okay, I'm done with this. Man. Uh, that I, I would, I wake up at 4am, get to the office at five so that I could button up yesterday because we'd have night jobs that were literally ending at five, 6am. And then we'd get ready for the day and, then I'd get home, walk, you know, walk my dog. And then I'd work for another like 90 minutes, two hours. And then I'd go to the gym and come back and work more. And it was just like, and then I'd get wake, woken up during the middle of the night, uh, with calls. And it was just, I don't know if it was that specifically, but it was just, man, I I can't, I can't be doing this. Like I have no life where, where I could be free. And, And Lewis talks about some freedoms that are, given by when we take off the invincible mask and one of them is true permission to just be and not constantly do. I I could not just be, I was always thinking about work. I was always, um, checking the app that we were using, checking emails. It it was a never ending cycle and I, I couldn't be free, um, because it had such a grip on me and I knew that I couldn't bring that into an engagement or a marriage. And so, um, I knew that, that I had to make the, uh, the healthy sacrifice, which was to leave, you know, a, a good job, ultimately a good mm-hmm. opportunity and be more available with a work-life balance. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Rob. Yeah. That's tough. That's a, not a fun way to live your life in my experience. And I'm proud of you for getting out of that. Yeah. And all. they made it sexy too, where it's like, they give you a work vehicle and they pay for your phone and they pay for your gasoline. I didn't pay for gasoline for three years Hmm. and they do all of these things too. Did you get overtime? No, but the, see, that's, that was the thing. It's like, it kind of evened out with the, uh, with the winter months being a little bit slower, but that's kind of what they, well, one it's, you know, construction asphalt. So like, people aren't going to be driving their Toyota Camry onto a job site, you know, like they need trucks that guys can move with lights on them and whatnot. And so, you know, they make it a little sexier by giving you all of these perks and trying to offset some of your financial costs or your personal costs, knowing that you're giving so much of yourself and your time. Yeah. Can I, can I throw in a, uh, a little personal, experience as it pertains to construction as well. Yes. I feel like um, throughout the last 10 years of my career, it's kind of been eye-opening 
because in construction, I've been in the field a lot, probably more than half of the time I've been out of college. I've been in the field actually doing like on construction jobs in one way or another, but I have seen a pretty common theme and the industry, like a lot of industries, are kind of bifurcated demographically right now, where it's a lot of guys that are getting close to retirement in their 50s and 60s. And then there's a lot of guys coming into it. So like, I feel like I'm lucky to have seen a lot of the things that I didn't want later in my career early, because I'm seeing a lot of these guys later in their career in the field. And what I've noticed is a lot of these guys tra- have traveled their whole career for work They've put in all the extra hours, gotten the extra overtime and, you know, provided for their family. And I think they've felt invincible in the sense that, like, I don't really need that community. I don't need that time at home. I can do it all. You know, I can still be home one or two weekends a month and maintain a good family life and go get paid um, overtime and all the stuff. And it's just like, there's different types of delusion when it comes to thinking you're invincible. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen a lot of these guys on their third and fourth marriages because of that, you know? And yeah. I just, that I was just a joke. Like that's a, yeah. I mean, that's a big, um, that's a big trend in, in a lot of industries, especially when travel's involved, but I've just seen so many guys think like, Oh, well that won't happen to me. I'll just, you know, keep traveling. Cause I want to earn the money or I want to be the provider and everything. And it's like, well, you need, you definitely need to have balance in that sense. Yeah. I think similarly, people like they view retirement that way. They work so hard, they can retire five years earlier. And it's like retirement's going to be this like paradise. Then it's like, oh, I mean, yeah. you got to be like in these moments while they're happening, you know, you're not going to get them again. Do you think that's why so many people, they work so hard and then once they finally retire, they're dead within yeah. five years or something? I think they they make work their identity so much all those years that once they retire, they have no purpose. And I think purpose is what keeps people alive more than almost anything. So you're saying that there could be health reasons, but it it might be that that sounds like some. I think like having having goals, probably a little both. Yeah, having goals and having like a plan, you know, I know working in healthcare, you'd see people who had like blue collar jobs they would they'd retire and they'd have all these health problems within a few months because they had these poor health behaviors, but they were really active during their work, so it didn't catch up with them. And when they retired, it would catch up to them right away. You know, they can't be eating as much as they were, drinking as much as they were. And, you know, their plan was to, oh, I'm just going to like sit on the couch all the time and watch movies or TV or sports. And it's a quick way to die. So, you guys ever seen those old, like, I don't know, TV show clips or advertisement clips from like the 60s they're like black and white and it's talking about technology in the future and i just remember there's a clip where the narrator says something like in the year 2000 we'll have flying cars and robots will do all our work for us (laughs) it's projected that we will only have to work 10 hours a week and maintain our current lifestyle and then it's like you fast forward and we're working 10 hours more a week than we ever did before despite all the i think about ai and everything that's kind of popping off right now and i'm just like you guys are joking if you think we're going to work less in the future we already (laughs) we already pretended like that was going to happen and ai is just going to find new ways to exploit our time i feel we're on the alternative uh you have adam and i's favorite movie wally 
Mm-hmm. I love Wally, dude. Yeah. Wally is awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have a robot do everything for you, but yeah, I get fat and sit on a floating. You know, chair. you know, by and large, by and large, by is and just can, can oh, be substituted most, in the, the most, real world for Costco. The most corrupt, <laughs> by and large, the most corrupt company in the history of the world. Yeah, but the benefits are incredible. <laughs> get to live on a spaceship for your whole life. There you go. I was gonna say I cannot quite relate to the level that Rob related to the inventory yeah. mask. The closest thing I had was when I had to work on call from one of my previous jobs. And it was just a week at a time at an IT support company. And just to preface, I do not relate to this mask whatsoever. Like I've never <laughs> felt <laughs> invincible. That's a good law when I was citizen. a kid. <laughs> <laughs> But for real, that's a that's a good way to put it, Rob. I've always been scared of something, whether that's getting hurt or working too hard. I'm not the type of person that would ever be so into my work that I neglect other aspects of my life. And maybe that's because I haven't really found a passion for what I mm-hmm. do for a living. That could be part of it. And part of it is because I don't really know what I want to do for a living still as mm-hmm. a mid 30-year-old. <laughs> but yeah. yeah when i was working on call for a week at a time i would dread those weeks the week before going on call i was very anxious that i had to do it the following week and then mm-hmm. when i was actually on call i would just dread pretty much any moment that was outside of the normal work hours because i was terrified of getting that phone call and not spending time with my family and being forced to work Instead of, you know, and just enjoying the free time that I had and I hated it. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, that was the closest thing I had. And then Stalin, your question was, have you ever been pushing so hard that you feel like things might break or you have a breakdown? Uh, no. <laughs> good. That's good. Never had that. But That's great. <laughs> I would say I got close to that. Not like not even with, like nothing of kids. I would say I got close to that with my first job that I got fired from, actually, mm-hmm. just because I absolutely hated the job. And it was like you clock in at eight o'clock on the dot. You work until your lunch, your assigned lunch hour. You have a 15 minute break between the start of the day and your lunch hour. Then you take your hour long lunch and then you have a one more 15 minute break until you clock out at exactly five o'clock just fielding support calls for the patient portal and being stuck in that job for three years with no way out. That's, I think that's the closest I came to having an actual breakdown of just being stuck in a job with no hope for something better in the future. Do you ever like look back one of your coworkers that like, I imagine all of you were, around a clock, like right at 4.58, 4.59. Do you ever like, you know, grab your coworkers badge and swipe them at 4.58 so they get into, into trouble? Not necessarily like that, but <laughs> some of us would like act like we were busy at 4.58 or 4.59 because we could still get a call at 4.59 and have to stay on that call until it was done. Hmm. So some of us would like we were busy call each other, yeah. call each other and, and block each That's other's a total office uh, space uh-huh. job, dude. 
That's what yeah. I was thinking. That's rough. You know, you mentioned the the environment in which you worked, and I feel like the worst environment I worked in, four hours a day of that is way more taxing to me than 12 hours a day at my current job. Like I could work this job 12 hours a day, five days a week, and I would still prefer that over four hours a day at the worst, you know, team that I've worked Mm -hmm. in, you know, like like I would say there's so many perspectives on this, um, feeling invincible because like you can't quantify it really. Like there's, there's invincible physically, there's invincible mentally, there's invincible, like from an emotional perspective and thinking you have to sit and deal with a really negative situation because you're a man and because you should be tough enough to do that is really unfortunate because you end up kind of destroying yourself because you think it has merit. And I've done that before. I felt like you said you were trapped in that job, but Matt, if you look back, you weren't trapped. Like you could have gotten a new job like six months into that first job. Probably (laughs) you just felt like you were trapped. And I think that there's, I don't know, this isn't really conspiracy, but I kind of think that there's, I feel like sometimes in jobs, they keep you busy enough to where you don't have time to think about other options. Yeah. There's probably truth in that. I think, I think though too, I think it also some, I'm going to kind of bridge the, to get like that from like work to other stuff. But like, I think sometimes I will feel like, and I, I think that you all probably can relate to this. Like as men, you'll feel like you, you really do have to kind of keep all the balls up in the air. Um, you have to like kind of keep the juggling act going at times of, you know, keeping life moving forward, you know, um, whenever we had Daphne, uh, beautiful, you know, these beautiful times is uh, earlier this summer, our AC went out that weekend like while we were at the hospital and so in like that in Phoenix, it was, I think it was like one fifteen, and thankfully my mother-in-law like had been in town. And so we like were able to find out that our AC went out while we were um, at the hospital still with Daphne. And um, so I started basically trying to get this problem solved. And so this, I, we found out about this probably about 12 hours before, like, Ruth wasn't like actively laboring, laboring. So it was probably one of 12 hours, but we're at the hospital, but we like found out this problem. And so I started like making phone calls and stuff. And I, we ended up being at the hospital for three and a half, four days, something like that. And we were about 30 minutes away from our house. And I think I made like two or three separate trips home, um, to meet AC people, like when my daughter was being born and there was just like having those problems, fixing it. And, to compound upon this, my, my grandfather had passed away a couple of days before Daphne was born, like a week before. And I remember getting to the hospital. It was like the night that later in the day after she'd been born. And I remember just like, like just weeping, just being like, so, so pushed to the, to the edge of like what I felt I had the capacity to do. And I felt like I had to do these things. So I had to fix the AC. I had to be there for my wife. I had to be there for my daughter. I had to be a good uh, I had to be a good son to my dad who had just lost his dad. And um, I remember my wife being super supportive and I remember her mother-in-law being really supportive. And uh, yeah, I was able to kind of like get things, like calm down and just really enjoy the moment with our daughter and stuff. But I recall it was like a couple of days later, I talked to my neighbor and he was like, why did you not call me? He was like, I could have gone to your house. Like you didn't have to come back and forth to your house. And I think sometimes that's for me where like the invincible mask is like, I feel like I have to do all the things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I, I have to 
be, you know, be the man and step up and endure things that I, that never I mean, ask for help. Yeah. I think sometimes it's just asking for help, you know? So that's a huge yeah. one. I didn't even think of that. That is so that's, that's, that's true for me too. Yeah. The, uh, we just had like a communication style thing at work and we kind of learned about like four different communication styles, like dominant, uh, expressive, amiable, and analytical. And the guy leading it was basically talking about like, I'm a dominant. So it's like an achiever, like somebody that really wants to like get things done. And he was saying basically how you can really get underneath a dominant skin. If you say, Oh, like, do you want me to ask somebody else to do this? And Mm -hmm. the like dominant will be like, no, 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 no. I got it. I got it. Like we don't need anybody's help. And like, I struggle with that where it's to your point, Stalen, it's like you probably felt like, no, no, I need when it's a different situation. It's a lot of life stuff, not work stuff. But oh, yeah, it's, yeah, like, it's the same. No, the no. Same. Like this is I got to do this. I got to I got to yeah. be there. I got to. This yeah. is something I have to take care of. Yeah. Well, as you got you got anything at all with the Invincible in general? Yeah, I, I have a lot. I was just I'm kind of having a hard time for some reason getting it all out. But you good, man. Yeah, I mean, I eat a lot. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, risky me? Risky behavior? No. <laughs> yeah, hey. no, I mean, I I always bring up FedEx, but it's like, you know, I would call my dad at night and be like, oh, yeah, nobody else is going out and I'm staying out. He'd be like... Uh, Bullets go through muscle too, son. <laughs> and I'd be like, damn, whatever. <laughs> uh, not me. It's like, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I get like uh, very hyper focused on a cause and I definitely will run myself into the ground if I believe in it enough. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes I can, sometimes I can justify it in my head. Um, <clears throat> to just push myself way too far. I I can relate to this guy in this book who's got PTSD, obviously, because he meditates a lot, and I do too. Yeah. Um, it's extremely yeah, helpful. The reporter, right? Mm-hmm. Dang yeah. Years. That's how I deal with mine, too. It's not perfect, but it does help a it's lot. Not. When did you start meditating? I started meditating. I mean, I started doing, like, five-minute guided body scan meditations, I think. Just prior to starting at FedEx, and then like when I would be out on road, I would take like uh, you know <laughs> we didn't get many breaks, you know. Uh, but most people, a lot of sometimes I didn't even take one, but we just didn't have time. But you know, I would try to, and I would do like a ten minute. I literally would lay down in the back of my truck and do like a ten minute <laughs> guided body scan, the calm app. And like, uh, it just kind of helped me release some of the stress and tension that, I, you know, and then I yeah. could finish my route or whatever and, you know, chug a shake or whatever. But, uh, you know, whenever I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I did, I pushed myself hard with that job and, you know, it led to me eventually succumbing from that ego of nobody's like the, the ego of like, nobody can mess with me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm her, I'm Hercules, you know, that's what everybody yeah. called me. Everybody was awesome. I miss all those guys, but it's like, 
I'm Hercules. Like nobody's going to mess with me. And then it's like just one night, like a particular incident just really got to me. And then the next day at the gym, I dropped a, and I was like, I dropped a barbell on my head the first time in my entire life. And I have a master's degree in exercise, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I was like, before that, I was like, you know, that's not something that someone with my background would ever do, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not like to be high ego. It's just like, that doesn't happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just, I was just so fight or flight. Like, and I just kind of got addicted to that feeling. I think, mm-hmm. um, I still kind of struggle with that. So anyway, then whenever that happened, I, you know, was on medical leave trying to go back literally like have a concussion that's like i can't even like i mean i can't tolerate light sound and yet i still tried to go back i did i loved that job but uh yeah (laughs) it's like why (laughs) you know like i'm driving around i remember the first time first i mean i did that on a wednesday i went back to work on the following monday and i'm driving around at night mind you uh, in the city and uh i just remember <laughs> the headlights looking like freaking feeling like laser beams straight to my skull <laughs> and it's uh <laughs> like it just was awful i mean think post-concussion symptoms to the max and i just kept yes, pushing and i got back i got back to the station i went the, that day and i my boss thought i was wasted i felt like i was like trying to unload my truck and I felt like I was on a sailboat. It was just really bad, but I, I just couldn't, I couldn't hang it up. And then I like kept doing physical therapy and I tried to go back and it was still, the symptoms were still bad. And I just was really stubborn and kind of not hanging it up. And eventually I, I got into meditation during that period of recovery from the concussion Mm -hmm. and got really good at silent. And I just, um, when I first started, I remember just like sitting there in silence for 20 minutes and it just like brought, I just remember like, it was like all these things kept coming up into my head that I hadn't thought about in forever, but it was like a, an emotional release of like all this stuff that was like, Oh, that's why I do that. Huh? That's why I do that. <laughs> and then I'd pair it with therapy and I'm like, Hey, I thought about this the last time. And <laughs> It's not like, yeah. So I don't know. Um, it helps you with emotional regulation for sure. But yeah, long story is that's like a prime example of me and work definitely wearing that mask. I mean, like I, yeah. I can't think of a better example. I mean, then I've done that. Uh, I mean, I almost, I almost had some panic attacks out on the road sometimes too. But that was more just like heat of the pandemic and you got to get all this stuff out to people and it's like, yeah. leave the, <laughs> what are they called? <laughs> leave the, uh, what were they called? Shoot. Um, <laughs> we would joke about them. It was like female, it was like a uh, female, it was like lingerie stuff. We would just, you would joke about like how many of those packages would come down the belt and be like, Oh, I got seven fashion Nova today. How many you guys got? <laughs> <laughs> I got eight. <laughs> and we'd be like, hey, leave the medicine here. You make sure you get all those fashion overpacks out first. <laughs> but now I was like, you know, like get all the important stuff out. 
and whatever else you can get out, do that. Yeah. But you it think, just was, you think you like that job because it was like a adrenaline rush? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's kind of a vicious cycle. It's like the more adrenaline you get from something, the more it reinforce. And, and if you don't get hurt or nothing bad happens, the more it reinforces your belief that you're invincible. So you do it again. Yeah. You get more adrenaline. Yeah. Nothing happens. You feel more invincible. It's like this this belief that sort of compounds until you realize one day, like you did, and like this this Dan Harris from Good Morning America did, that like, oh, there is a limit yeah. to what or I even- can handle. Yeah, and I pushed myself with his. Oops, sorry. I was gonna say I pushed myself too like hard in other areas of life too, like that, like powerlifting. You know, it just. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of guys do. That's pretty common, I think. We're gonna say Rob. I was just gonna say yeah, or even Lewis with his stealing, where he was like getting away with, you know, little knickknacks, petty stuff, and then he steals a farmer's like money for fertilizing his crops and. Um, he had the realization like, oh my gosh, like I took the money that this guy was going to use to like help his farm. And that's how he puts food on his table for his family. And I almost took that away from him. Yeah. 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 I don't know what kind of $25 recognition and awareness of, of yeah, the, the actions that we do take and the consequences and harm that they can cause to not only ourselves, but to others. For sure. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Do you dribble on your pants after taking a pee? Is it causing anxiety, (laughs) especially in the workplace setting, whenever you have to give a presentation shortly thereafter? You can only hold your hand or that notepad there for so long. Now introducing Dribble Pad. Dribble Pad is a manly pad that soaks all residual leakage caused by hurrying, carelessness, and old age. Pee with confidence with Dribble Pad. Dribble Pad, <laughs> we've got your front side covered. Oh my God. You know, because blowout booty bag and burp up towel nice. has, you know, both oh, yeah. ends covered. <laughs> we've got your front side covered with can Dribble we change, Pad. Can we change the name oh to Wiener Bib? <laughs> 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 We could Rob, nothing like making a business to solve your own problem. That's right. Man. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm really just kind of letting everybody into my own problems. And now back to the show. Well, let's get into uh, the last bit here. So he ends this chapter talking about the concept in Stoic philosophy of memento mori, which is translated to remember you are mortal or remember you must die. This phrase has been popularized in recent years by Ryan Holiday and others encouraging a Stoic philosophy. Uh, In this book, uh, Lewis talks about how in Roman culture, a warrior would come home uh, after They've been in battles and such, and there'd be a celebration in their town and a parade for them. And during this parade, while they're being, you know, they're being cheered upon and everyone's uh, celebrating all the good things they've done, they, they'd actually have a, uh, according to the book, they'd have a, a slave behind the, the Roman warrior repeating the phrase, memento mori. 
reminding the warrior, hey, like you're still mortal. You're going to die one day. And uh, and basically that idea was to just remind the individual that, hey, we're not invincible. And so in, in removing the invincible mass, we are reminded that we are we are mortal and uh, truly focus on what matters the most in life. So I first heard that phrase probably like a year and a half ago. You know, as a lot of like the stoicism stuff's gotten really popular. Um, and for me, it was just such a powerful statement. Uh, whenever you guys hear that, does, what, does anything come to mind to you guys? You know, is that a statement that you've heard before or do you have any thoughts on that? It makes me feel a little embarrassed. I don't think about that enough, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like when I think about that, I, I actually heard it because I started reading all the stoic stuff mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But I guess we're, we're a culture that really puts off thinking about that stuff. You know, and so I feel a little bit I like to try and pride myself as being humble, but like that's one of the most humble things you can repeat to yourself. And it's a really great reminder to live your life the right way. And I just don't feel like I do it enough. So do you ever think about that when you get on your motorcycle? (laughs) No, like just in general. I do. I do. But not enough. And riding a motorcycle is super fun. I need to about that when I get on my bicycle. You, uh. You always want to take more risk when you're on a motorcycle because it's just a, a really good time. But you got to remember that stuff. Yeah. So I had never heard that phrase either, but I really liked it. I thought it was really cool. First of all, the Roman Empire is just awesome and fascinating. Yeah, oh. for sure. The Roman, Roman Empire is my Roman Empire. That phrase, Have you guys heard that phrase that's going on mm-hmm. recently? Like people who are super interested in in a subject or something they just call it their roman empire because guys our age are just like so really? fascinated by the roman no, empire we spend so much time <laughs> have you seen like, have you seen the meme where it's like there's a there's a girl in bed with her husband or her boyfriend and her thought bubble says i wonder if he's thinking about other girls right now and he's uh-huh. thinking about the roman empire <laughs> <laughs> Or like World War II history or something. Yeah, like World yeah. War II history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love those. Those are hilarious. Yeah, That's okay. awesome. But yeah, I I thought this phrase was really really cool. And it, the first thing that it reminded me of when I was reading this chapter is uh, I couldn't remember exactly who or where it was, but there's a country where there's a minister of happiness. Mm. And Bhutan. I looked at Bhutan. That's right. Bhutan. Yeah. At least that's what I found on Google. Is that from the book that we read? Bhutan. Maybe. I don't know. But I Googled no, it that wasn't, phrase, it wasn't, like the it Minister of Happiness. Yeah, Comfort oh, Crisis. Oh, Comfort Crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Minister of Happiness just says to think about death three times a day. Yeah. And they built that into their culture of death is just a part of the cycle of life. And their culture is so much different. The article that I pulled up from Google, there was this study where an American went to go interview that guy. And the guy was like, Americans think life is just a checklist of things to accomplish. Like you graduate high school, you graduate college, you get married, you have kids, you make money. And then what is left after that? Maybe you have 10 pairs of shoes. What's next? Get 11 pairs of shoes. And that's how Mm -hmm. Americans live their life. It's just getting the next thing. Once you have that thing, then you get more of it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that is not the key to living a happy life. Incorporate thinking about death three times a day in your life. 
and that will change your perspective on how you live it. So yeah, that's, that's been good. I, I really like that phrase, but I think for me personally, remember you are mortal or remember you must die. I think that also kind of ties into the Christian philosophy Mm -hmm. of how we live life. Cause as Christians, our hope is not in this life. It's in the next life in heaven. And so I was raised, I believe in the Christian belief. And I know many of our listeners will not agree with this, but we're on this earth to give glory to God so that we can be with God afterwards. What we do in this life, it does matter, but it's not our final hope. Our final hope is in something greater we're looking forward to something afterwards. So I don't know. I think I've always had that belief and uh, that's kind of made the way I live my life a little bit different than most other people that I'm around because I'm not living just for this moment. I'm not living just for being successful in this life alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to something beyond that, something greater. Oh. Amen. Good. Love that, Matt. Um, no, I I couldn't agree more. What have any of you guys seen? The Alpinist on Netflix. Yes. Yes. So that's like one of the craziest documentaries that I've ever seen. So yeah. it pretty much starts out with Alex Honnold. He's the rock climber, free solo guy from the free solo documentary, and they're basically like, "Hey, who's catching your eye?" And to Alex Honnold, and he's like this guy, Mark Andre LeClaire, who is the focal point of the alpinist. And so Alex Honnold, he'll go up to uh, a rock face and he'll study it. He'll do it with ropes. He's going to know every single finger placement and when and where he's going to you know, climb this wall. So he rehearses it and then he does it with no rope, no nothing. So like, yeah, super badass. But this Mark Andre Leclerc guy, he will literally go up to a rock face and just start climbing and not know anything about it. It'll be sheets of ice. He'll climb the sheets of ice with a pickaxe. Doesn't know how sturdy the ice is. I mean, this guy makes Alex Honnold look like a little baby. <laughs> and he does. And it's super powerful. I mean, for anybody yeah. that hasn't watched it, it's unfortunate because he does end up dying yeah. at the end of it. Um, because a blizzard comes and gets him. But I was thinking about this because well, in, for the ruining documentary, it. <laughs> in the documentary, <laughs> in the documentary, he basically says like, I would not like to do anything else is death itself. Like yeah. by me doing this and knowing the risk of dying, like I am living like, yeah. this is how I live by doing this. And And with this comes the great risk that I could die in the process. And I was thinking about this and I'm, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are because obviously he thought about death a lot, but I'm almost wondering if his, uh, if he put like an idol into invincibility, um, or how invincible he was to where he could just talk the talk of like, yeah, I know I'm going to die, but you almost wonder in those last moments, like, did he really like, did he really not care about dying? And did he have like an aha moment in those final moments? Like, Ooh, that was, 
way easier to say that than not. And I, and that he put too much stock into like, yeah, death, it, it can happen. It's, it's fine. I'm living right now. Um, I'm curious what you guys think on that, but that was something that I was really pondering yeah. because I had heard those comments of like, well, for, you know, Travis Pastrana could probably say like, man, I'm not alive unless I'm doing backflips uh, yeah. or double backflips on a motocross bike. And um, while I think there's some truth to them, like feeling really alive, I, I almost wonder if if these extreme junkies are almost putting too much stock into like them just spewing out like, well, you know, hey, I'm invincible. And if I die, it's part of the process. And I, w- I bet they probably mean it in those last moments that they wish they they weren't going to die. I feel like there's got to be layers to it. And obviously like, you know, that's, I can't, that's not who I am, but I feel like there's going to be layers in the sense of like, maybe there's a component of like martyrdom, you know, like maybe for like Mark, for example, he's like, Oh, like in his mind, maybe he like put up, like you mentioned, idolized the idea of like dying for the sport. Um, and that would be like a cool thing, you know, or, you know, something like, you know, about Travis with the adrenaline component. I mean, like you legitimately, people legitimately get addicted to doing a little bit more. And, um, I remember in relation to Alex Honnold, I remember him getting interviewed shortly after he did that free solo. And, uh, they're like, what's next? And he basically had, was like, this is the biggest wall in the world. I free solo the biggest wall in the world. And so I remember, a lot of the people at the time talking about like, Oh, like, is he going to do like more dumb, you know, cause like you always want to do a little more. And, uh, y- if you all have seen free solo, you'll see that like pretty much everyone who's been a really legitimate climber that free solo eventually dies. Like that's just, you know how it is. And so it's like, do you, do you get addicted to, to the, like to what it brings in? And, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, but I, I feel like there's gotta be layers to it where there's, multiple components of what's going on psychologically. And yeah, I think, I think though, personally, I think those guys are a little bit delusional. I mean, Mm. I think for me, everything's always about balance. Like there, there is always two extremes. There's the guy who, like I mentioned earlier, travels for his job and he's dead inside and he doesn't feel like he's living one day of his life because he just feels like he has to like take it all the time and go through stuff that doesn't, doesn't actually make him passionate or excited about anything. And I would argue maybe the guy that climbs rock walls and risks death every day has a better life than that. But if you're dead, you're, I mean, both of the guys are, are essentially ineffective for the rest of time. (laughs) If, if you're basically a shell of a person or you're dead, you're kind of, I don't know, neither one's very effective. So I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Like you, you have to have balance and while those guys are super inspiring and I respect their level of risk and probably a lot of them are really smart too, to be that good at doing what they're doing. I just don't think it's worth death. I think you can still be smart enough to avoid death in most cases. I think there's a, you know, there's a risk matrix you have to look at every time you do stuff like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. What's the cause you're fighting for there? What's the, who are you helping there? You know, when Mm. you're risking your life climbing a wall, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I think you could, when you look at it that way, it seems like you could say it's a selfish pursuit, 
you're yeah. pursuing something just for yourself. You're not trying to build connectedness and maybe that's over. That's, that's probably oversimplifying it, but yeah, I think, I think Trav, I mean, maybe to bring us home here, but I think Travis, you know, he talks about like even the safety guy that was their guy that kind of pumped the brakes and even he experienced death in, in a much more conservative role, but still within a risky role and just how, yeah, when we recognize our, our purpose and um, the hats that we wear as, as husbands, as fathers, as sons, um, you know, it is, it becomes selfish to become um, super risky or wanting to be invincible. And, and we, you know, if we want to be men that leave legacies that can, you know, impact generations, we, we have to be there. Um, and by being there, it means that, that we aren't taking unnecessary risks, um, that put ourselves in harm's way. Yeah. I feel like I need to balance that with there is a good, such a thing as good risk though. And yeah, for yeah, sure. for sure. yeah. It's just balance it out with, you know, risk is good. And I feel like our society is very risk averse now. So I feel like that needs and to risk be, doesn't have to be like some physical extreme, right? Like it could literally be, um, putting yourself in a new situation around people that you've yeah. never been with. Right. I could see honestly this mask going hand in hand with loneliness a lot of times, right? Mm, yeah. I see that. The more you convince yourself you're you're invincible, the more you pretend you don't need anybody else there with you through anything. Well, you were saying this is kind of like a, a you felt this was more discreet than others. Yeah, this mask can go, I feel like, in so many directions. The others are a lot more easy to peg as it pertains to how it affects your life. This one, I feel like, is very... Uh, it could vary from person to person like pretty widely, I feel like, yeah. for this one. I thought of it as being more relatable to the aggressive mask when he was talking about as it pertains to a person's career. Like mm. You try to get power. You try to yeah. get uh, ahead of people, dominant just to climb the corporate ladder. I saw those two hand in hand. What's the, what you are when you take off the mask? Self-esteem, true courage, sense of belonging. I feel like the biggest true courage thing that was mentioned during this was actually asking for help and admitting that you can't do it all in the moment. That, that comment was gold, Stalin. I feel like <laughs> that is one thing that's so hard to do. Even if you're asking somebody that you know won't judge you, it still just feels wrong a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I think because there's the part of you too that like wants to succeed while doing all the things, right? And you want to, you want to prove to yourself that you're man enough to accomplish it by yourself, right? Yeah. 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 But that's not always, that's not always wise. Yeah. I mean, I think too, I mean, even just to that, how many times, I feel like there's been so many times where I feel like I've missed an opportunity to like build a better connection with someone by like not asking them for help for help. I know like we have yeah. like we have some friends that I feel like they're always great in offering help and I, I don't feel like we take them up on that very often and like with me traveling a lot right now, I've really encouraged Ruth like, hey, reach out to them. Like they're gonna they wanna support us, you know, they care for us and that's us like, you know. Like let, let people serve you like that. You know, it's good for them. It helps build them up. And, you know, so 
Let people help you. That wraps up our episode for the Books Brothers podcast. Next week, the bros will review and discuss the eighth mask, the know-it-all mask, pages 175 to 194. If you haven't yet, buy or borrow The Mask of Masculinity, how men can embrace vulnerability, create strong relationships, and live their fullest lives by Lewis Howes. And read along with us. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. Please subscribe and give us a review. We would really appreciate it. Also, please consider sharing this podcast with a friend or family member who you'd think would get something out of it. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. If you were challenged by our conversation or have any questions or feedback, email us at connect at booksbrotherspodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Until then, read, reflect, and connect.